Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio is the FT's retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent. On the line, we have Miles Johnson from Madrid to talk about Spain. That's the clue that the first topic this week we'll be looking at is uh, a look at the ongoing Eurozone crisis, particularly as it's manifesting itself in Spain, but also we'll look at what's going on in Greece. By having to nationalise banking, an institution which the bank itself and successive governments have said is completely stable and would not need any more state aid has sort of exploded that myth. We'll discuss the impact of the CIO loss at JP Morgan. This is the specialist treasury operation at JP Morgan that lost $2 billion. It was revealed last week. I think that the potential damage is really huge. You know, it, it goes way beyond the $2 billion losses. And finally, we'll look at Canary Wharf, London's new financial centre that is only 20 years old, which is set to overtake the City of London as the biggest employer of bankers in Europe in the next couple of months. It's quite remarkable to have a complete new centre of power for, for the banks being built up within just two decades. Firstly, the Eurozone and the crisis there, which shows no signs of abating. Miles, last week was a pretty tumultuous one for the Spanish banks, uh, not least Bankia, the uh, uh, kind of merged entity uh, created out of seven cajas uh, a year or so ago and then floated. What did, what did you think was the most dramatic development last week in terms of that Spanish banking story? Well, I think last week, obviously, there was a sort of high degree of drama with one of the largest banks in the country being part nationalized. But I think the most important thing from last week was the moment in the banking crisis so far where the government could no longer die the true extent of the problem in the sense that Bankia is almost symbolic of the banking reforms which Spain has tried to push through so far, which have been sort of piecemeal and sort of incremental really solved the problem which is at the heart of Spanish banks. And I think by having to nationalize banking, an institution which the bank itself and successive governments have said is completely stable and would not need any more state aid has sort of exploded that myth. And what about that kind of broader question of the kind of health of the, the broader property loans that the sector is exposed to? As you say, the kind of new requirement on provisioning is kind of yet another step by the authorities to, to try and shore up the defences of the banks. But there's some question as, as to whether that's even enough, even, you know, after that's been done, whether that will be enough. We, we had, uh, you make the comparison with the Irish crisis, um, actually the losses that were experienced on, on the property loans there were higher than than even these topped up provisions well yes th this is really the problem because you know as um you know i've been speaking to analysts who now tell me you know no number which comes out of spanish banks or the central bank is really taken seriously by anyone anymore because there is this sort of credibility problem now because if you turn around and you say 
we have now implemented the definitive banking reform as the previous government did, and then you have to bail out the bank, you know, six months, eight months down the line, no one will believe your numbers anymore. And the real problem here is that saying you will raise more provisions against bad property assets is one thing, but do people really care if it's going to be 20 billion, 30 billion, 40 billion? I don't really think so. I think the most important step which we saw from the reform last Friday was that Spain is going to bring in independent auditors to, for the first time, look at banks' books and give an independent opinion which should hopefully reassure international observers and investors that these numbers are credible. You've identified that there are a few parties that they are already talking to, although no one's yet been appointed, is that right? Well, as as I understand it, the um, Bank of Spain invited certain advisors last month to come in to the Bank of Spain and draw up some proposals around the idea of this bad bank, although they were very keen not to call it a bad bank, actually due to the experiences of Ireland, where, you know, Nama eventually didn't go entirely to the plans of some of its designers. But there are, you know, BlackRock Solutions, which was one of the parties that was involved in the Irish um, situation, was there, and a couple of others. But the mandates for that, I don't think, have been decided yet. Well, we will see. I mean, this really is um, an extremely important step, um, and maybe the last time a Spanish government will have its fate in its own hands in regards yes. to the country's banks. an attempt to restore credibility on, on, on the quantity of the this problem. But what happens then once that once a credible number is out there there are quite a few people who think including myself actually who thinks that the only way uh, that Spain can probably get out of this is to resort to European bailout money if they can get hold of it is that do you think becoming a consensus view it is becoming closer to a consensus view among sort of analysts and maybe observers outside of the country. But among politicians here, it really is Rupert which remains you know, very far from being crossed. I think no one wants to have any external interference in the banks. And I think just the pure stigma of seeking external money is just something which politicians would not be able to stomach at the moment. Whether they'll be forced into that position is another matter because, simply put, the government does not have the money to be um, throwing into banks. I mean, it's quite important that the state aid offered to banks on Friday was in the forms of loans, high-interest loans. But surely that's the that's the problem, is that it's not credible enough to, to restore confidence, that if it's if it's in, in that form of loans, it's not... That's not what the sector needs, really. It needs equity, and uh, equity isn't available. Exactly. I mean, this is really is the problem. I mean, um, Luis de Guindos, the uh, Spanish finance minister, said that state aid, he did not expect it to be more than 15 billion. This is 15 billion is a problem, which you know is a 300 billion plus loan book. So finally, Miles, what should we expect this week and over the coming weeks in terms of uh, the Spanish authorities' response to the banking crisis? I think we've already seen today, at the start of the week, we've seen banks coming out and explaining to their investors how they're going to raise this money. So far, every bank seems to say that they're going to raise the money from their own retained earnings and they're not going to have to resort to state aid. What we will soon see is whether their investors believe them. And I think, you know, bank shares in Spain are down sharply today. And there is a sort of um, feeling that some of the banks are going to have to raise capital. 
And secondly, you know, we have an interesting sort of secondary effect on Spanish business, which is that a lot of these banks, at least the, the savings banks, the Cajas, they have uh, industrial holdings. For example, Bankia has 12% of IAG, you know, which um, contains British Airways and yeah. Liberia. And these are likely to be sold or in some form. Whether we're going to see that immediately is not clear. But That's a very good point. A this could really lead to a shakeup of ownership of, uh, of corporate Spain. Exactly. OK, well, listen, on that note, thank you very much, Miles. Charlene, Spain's banks are not just restricted to activity in Spain. Uh, we've got Spain's biggest bank, Santander, has uh, a substantial operation in the UK. Should customers of that bank, Santander UK, be concerned at all about the ramifications of the Spanish crisis? Well, Santander would, I'm pretty sure, say no, um, because they've been pretty clear, especially recently, that their subsidiary model means each ge- geographical business has its own protection, its own capital, and you know that can't be sort of drained by problems in the group in in Madrid. But you know, I mean, they're a Spanish bank. I guess it's always going to be of some concern. Um, and Santander have been one of the first banks to come out and say how they expect to meet the new provision levels. They've got to raise a further sort of almost 3 billion euros, but they think they can do it. And, you know, their track record of raising fresh capital has been pretty good, almost surprisingly Mm. good at times. They've managed to meet prior requirements extremely quickly. Well, at the end of last year, they came up through a variety of transactions with about 15 billion, didn't they, within a matter of weeks in order to meet the requirements of the European Banking Authority. Yeah, and they they always say they can sell bits and pieces of their international business. I think they're now looking uh, to fund some of this capital by the sale of its Colombian unit and also retained earnings. I mean, how long they can keep dipping into retained earnings remains to be seen. But, uh, you know, at, at the moment, I think there isn't dire worries about the bigger banks. No, um, as you say, Santander and BBVA are, you know, pretty robust. They've got a lot of their income coming from overseas. And I think if Bankia had a UK subsidiary, uh, we might be justly concerned yeah. about the solidity of that. Of course, Spain isn't the only hotspot in the Eurozone crisis at the moment. Greece is very much uh, a focus as well. This week, we are seeing the Eurozone's finance ministers meeting to discuss the issue. What do you think is going to be their kind of starting point of discussion? Well, they haven't had much joy in Greece over the weekend. I think there's been a whole series of meetings that were eventually abandoned. They couldn't form um, a government again. And, you know, it seems that they won't be able to do that. I think we're heading for fresh elections there next month. That seems the most likely scenario. Um, And as all that happens, I think people are slowly warming up to the idea that, you know, a Greek exit from the euro is not unthinkable anymore. I mean, even a year ago, people were saying, look, this, you know, this would be a disaster, this can't happen. Now, increasingly, people still think this is unlikely. But they're thinking, you know, we we have to prepare and some very senior sort of officials in in Europe are are being franker than they have been and saying that, you know, they are thinking this is a possible scenario and we have to think about it and we have to make preparations. And indeed, that's that's happening now more than it has ever before. And obviously, this is uh, all this uncertainty is pretty bad news for the Greek banks. We don't have any data on the departure of deposits from the Greek banking system in the last uh, week or so since the election. But I can't imagine that it's a particularly stable deposit base. That obviously makes things difficult for them. But it's the knock-on effect for 
banks abroad as well exactly. like most people are concerned it's not just greece and i'm sure there has been you know a big outflow of deposits into safer perceived safer areas you know the german banks for example but likewise in portugal and spain mm. and ireland again you know we that seems to have weathered things quite well but you know this growing sort of talk of a greek exit would definitely sp- shine the spotlight back on those areas and and that's the big fear you know that's why people really don't want it to happen the fear of contagion and there are some optimists out there who think that could be uh, limited and you if you can convince uh, the markets that you know it was a decision by Greece they weren't forced out you know that would probably be the way th- people thinking it would happen yes um, and so you know maybe the, the contagion could be limited but I think that isn't probably an over optimistic scenario yeah quite uh, we should move on to our second topic JP Morgan now Daniel you were watching this very closely last week when to everyone's surprise uh, Jamie Dimon, the chief executive, uh, came out and admitted that his pretty flawless track record over the past few years since the, the financial crisis hit had been rather sullied by uh, a surprise $2 billion trading loss. Interesting where it came. Basically, this operation, which is their treasury business, in other words, their own funds, uh, some people might see this as a giant proprietary trading operation. Were you surprised to see this loss? Yes, it, it was it was very surprising, although it came with a short warning because in early April there were first reports suggesting that there has been a in this unit which which frankly not many people really uh, outside of the banking industry knew or or not many analysts were watching closely before uh before that happened that that one trader in London um uh, Bruno Ixel a, a French born banker who's who's been dubbed as the London whale because he he made such a big trade that it became such a big position some say it's up to 100 billion uh on one specific credit derivative or credit default swap um index that there are these reports that it it has become so big that it's difficult to unwind. And at the time in the middle of April, Jamie Dimon said, this is a tempest in a teapot. There's nothing going on. It's it's all wrong. The reports basically. And he said this week then, well, last week, he firstly had to admit there's, there's now a two billion loss. It came out of the blue, basically. And this week, he or at the end of last week, he admitted that he was dead wrong in, in calling it a tempest in a teapot. So yeah. He he was very quick to say I got that wrong yeah. and there's something really you know really big going on and he admitted to it. The question is how much did he know before about this? What's going on there? And the other question is obviously I mean how could a bank J.P. Morgan known for its risk management for its really you know being basically at the forefront of of good risk management? How how could a bank like that ha- let that happen? How much damage do you think has been done to J.P. Yeah. Morgan's reputation, Jamie Dimon's reputation, and I think finally the the other area that people are concerned about obviously is banks ability to continue to lobby against tighter regulation given yeah. that Mr. Diamond was at the forefront of that kind of anti-regulatory drive and uh, this is an area this derivatives area uh, is one that's kind of escaped the toughest of regulation thus far and this is obviously going to harden the resolve of reformers to um to clamp down isn't it yeah i think that the potential damage is really huge you know it, it goes way beyond the two billion losses and you know m- maybe it's going to be more losses even more losses than that we don't know but it's going to be go way beyond that for one thing uh, jp morgan and jamie diamond in particular worked he was 
strongly arguing against uh, the the Volcker rule in the US, which mm. which basically prohibits banks from trading with their own money and speculating with their own money. And so it's going to be really difficult now for him for, to argue against it when when basically JP Morgan has what some say, you know, turned the treasury into a sort of proprietary mm. trading desk. Absolutely. I mean, they're disputing that, but people outside the bank say this, this is actually what has happened. Mm. And the other thing is, it's it's going to bring discussions about uh, derivatives and credit default swaps back on the agenda. JP Morgan is one of the biggest players in that space, so mm. um, you know, so, so that I think there's going to be more regulatory backlash on that. And yeah. On the third level, JP Morgan is the biggest bank in the US, and it's got a 2.3 trillion balance sheet. And it, people are starting to wonder: Is this bank too big to control all the yeah. risk it's got? So it's going to bring, in other words, it's going to bring the discussion back on the agenda about too big, too to, big fail to fail. So, yeah, Charlene, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think this will bring again fresh questions on regulators, like why it's mm. taken them so long to, you know, get a new uh, system in place. It's not just J.P. Morgan; it's all the banks. You know, we've again come under the spotlight. I mean, we saw share price falls across the board on Friday, yeah. and I'm sure we will again today. Yeah. I suppose the, the, the counter-argument is that as long as the bank is strong enough to withstand losses like this, it kind of should be up to a bank to take the kind of level of risk that it wants to, mm-hmm. as long as it's not going to pose a problem. And as we uh, reported, obviously JP generates uh, in a quarter way more than the losses on this and transaction, as far as we're aware, they yeah. they amount to at the moment. So uh, yeah, I mean that's the interesting thing about it. So, I mean everybody's pointing now to this two billion loss, but actually, I mean they, they, the chief investment office uh, in in the past few years has generated a lot of profits as well that go uh, I think way beyond the the two billion I'm that, sure uh, they, would, that yeah. they yeah that they've come out with loss now. So um, you know unless it turns into something really big mm. in, in terms of the losses, it's it's actually it is sort of a tempest in a teapot for yeah. if. You just look at it from the from a from pure, pure economic financial. perspective yeah. for JP Morgan, but obviously, but it, the, yeah. the, the political and public debate is just, just going to look that. at the two billion. Exactly. Then. Our final topic for today is about London's financial centre, and again, Daniel JP Morgan is at the centre of it. Actually, uh, as we reported in Monday's paper kind of centre of gravity of London as a financial centre is, is shifting uh, thanks to JP Morgan's shifting of its European headquarters from the city to Canary Wharf, which is taking place gradually and, and will be completed by July. There's about 8,000 bankers in total moving across. And by our calculations, that means there's going to be more than 44,000 people working at the big banks in Canary Wharf, a thousand or so more than in the city at the big banks. Is this a big significant day do you think or uh, does it not matter at all i think it does matter in the sense that um well for, firstly for some of the bankers who work in canary wolf they don't really like canary wolf and so for it will matter for the eight thousand people at jp yeah. morgan most of whom i think will will say i don't i'd, I'd like more working in the city than mm. i do in canary wolf canary wolf is seen as very st- sterile and not you know it's 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 been built from from scratch basically it's all it's all modern and nice but it doesn't have this this old feeling and nice you know feeling that the city has as you know so so most bankers we we speak to they they enjoy working in the city if they yeah. work in the city most others who work in Canary Wharf say it's it's okay but it's not mm. it's not like working in the city no quite and 
and it does matter as you know it, it's quite remarkable to have a complete new center of power for, for the banks being built up within just two decades yeah exactly it's about 20 years yeah almost exactly since since uh Canary wolf sprang up it's taken some time to get the momentum but Charlene, do you think it's going to continue? I think it will. I mean, we have got a number of skyscrapers going up around the city area. I mean, it's interesting what it would mean for them, you know, Mm. if they're going to have trouble filling that room. And I think it's also interesting from the sort of cultural perspective. And there were a couple of quotes in the piece you mentioned on Monday's paper just saying how... You know, sort of comparing it to a bit of a, a beehive. You know, mm. I thought that was really interesting, saying that you know bankers need to get out mm. and actually interact with each other. And you know, in Canary Wharf, they tend to be very enclosed in their huge tower blocks. That's one their, of the criticisms you yeah. hear about management, kind of executive floors at these big banks. They're up on you know the thirtieth or the fortieth floor, mm. and um, in some cases, that encourages them to stay there. And never interact. (laughs) So you lose that whole, you know, the whole sort of traditions of the city and the Mm. kind of, you know, the not seedy, but, you know, the the pubs and the. The client client relationship issue is one that we kind of uh, alluded to in the piece. And I think it's one that a lot of bankers feel very strongly that both from, you know, uh, pleasantness of, of working existence point of view, but also from a real practical kind of client interaction point of view, being stuck out in Canary Wharf, a place that clients don't necessarily want to go to, is not necessarily a sustainable one. And in many cases, as for example, at JP Morgan, they're maintaining a presence in the city in order to be able to meet their clients, which is slightly defeating the object you'd have thought. Sadly, we need to finish there. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Daniel and also to thank Miles on the line, and to thank you for listening. Remember that you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.